0: Okay, we are going to be in Deuteronomy chapter four, so you can turn there in advance. Um, We're gonna start our time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we have together. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your mercies that were new today. Lord, I pray that you would be with our time these next few moments. Lord, I pray that you would help me to have clarity of thought and speech I pray that your word would become alive to us, that we would be able to, by the power of your spirit, see your presence and hear your voice as we look into Deuteronomy. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are and for all that you've done on our behalf. And I pray this um, and ask for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Deuteronomy 4. As we have worked our way through some of Israel's history over these last few weeks, um, the thing that stands out the most to me is God's faithfulness to his word. And he is faithful to his word in spite of us. In fact, his faithfulness is magnified in light of the unfaithfulness of God's people. He is faithful to his word. Jeremiah tells us that God is watching over his word in order to perform it. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful way of expressing what God is doing in this world. And we see that he is doing this. We see that played over, played out over and over again in scriptures. We saw, just in, in these last few weeks, how God had promised Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars, and then 400 very long years later, years later, as the Israelites looked around at themselves, they saw the faithfulness of God to that promise. We saw that God continued to be faithful to Abraham. As last week, we saw how he preserved Edom, the descendants of Esau, and Ammon and Moab, um, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the descendants of Lot. He did not, in spite of the fact that these groups of people were pagan and they were idolaters, And they caused a lot of problems as we looked in our homework this week with Israel. God still remembered his promise to Abraham and he spared them this group of people. And finally last week we saw God's faithfulness to his word as he gave the kings uh, Sihon and Og over into the hands of Israel. It was God who led the way. It was God who led them into battle. It was God who gave them the victory. And They received this land. They had victory over this land, and the tribes of Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh all received their inheritance. They received it. The promise that God had made all those years before that he would give them an inheritance began to come true. They began to see the first fruits of this promise that God was going to continue to do on behalf of the people of Israel. So we saw that last week, and then this week in our text, and I want to start out with the very end of, of what we studied this week, verses 41 through 43, we saw God's continued faithfulness to the people of Israel as he, through Moses, sets up these cities in their um, inheritance that, re- that they received on the east side of the Jordan River. Let's look at verse 41 real quickly. And it says, it looks like there's a, somebody had added this in, an editor had, had added this little bit of information in about what Moses had done when they received this inheritance. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. And so in continuing to think through the faithfulness of God as he begins to give to them their inheritance, we see him establishing these cities as places of refuge. We're going to talk about this later on in the study. It goes into much more detail about the cities of refuge but for now, just know that this is a reflection of the character of God because God ultimately is the refuge for those who trust in him. He preserves them. He protects them. We see him doing that in the people of Israel, and he remains a place of refuge for believers today. So let's, um, in, So in every way, God is faithful, and he preserves and protects his people. God is watching over his word in order to perform it. He is always working out his amazing plan of redemption. And so, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, with the words, and now, that's how they begin, Moses pivots away from the historic prologue and begins to turn our hearts and minds to his purpose for the writing of Deuteronomy. His purpose is God's covenant and his statutes, it's what the book is about. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 4 is a sermon within a sermon, if you will, where Moses lays the foundation for God's covenant and the commands by one, he giving the purpose of the covenant and the commands. And we see that in verses 1 through 8. We also see him give warnings about the consequences of when we forget the covenant and walk away in disobedience. He's warning throughout the whole chapter about what happens when we forget the covenant and reminding us to remember the covenant and to remember God and to remember all that he has done as a solution to forgetfulness. He's also, within this chapter, revealing who the God of the covenant is. He's revealing who he is in verses 32 through forty. Especially, he is revealing who this God is. And finally, Moses calls the people to a response. To a response. So let's begin looking at verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules. The statutes and the rules are the, the way Moses is communicating the law. It's, what, it's the law that God gave to the people of Israel at Sinai. He refers to this as the statutes and rules. And if you counted throughout this chapter, it, the words statutes and rules are used like six times. Six times he, he mentions these, this phrase. And he's turning our attention to the covenant. You remember a few weeks ago we defined the covenant as a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. The statutes and rules are the covenant. They are the terms of this relationship that God is establishing with his people. And guaranteeing by his word. They are intended to be listened to. And not just listen to, to be obeyed and passed down from generation to generation. It's over nine times in this chapter, you hear the words listen and do, or listen and keep, or um, obey. All of that variation of words over and over and over again, connected to the statutes and rule, is the call, the call to listen and to keep and to do the commands. They are intended to be listened to, obeyed, and passed down from generation to generation. Why? Well, this verse tells us why. What is the purpose of these statutes and rules? What is the purpose of the covenant? It's that you may live. It's for life. They are intended to be for life. They are not death-inducing. God's commands are life-giving because God is the giver of life. God is good and his commands are good. And his commands are for flourishing of his people. Remember the Garden of Eden? His blessing was in his commands. His commands to be fruitful and multiply and to work and keep the garden. This was part of his blessing. And his blessing was to eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat for the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. Death comes through disobedience to the commands of God. Life comes through the obedience to the commands of God. The other thing that, um, the other purpose for the commands is possession of the land. It says that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Somehow their obedience to the commands is connected to them being able to possess, take possession of the land. Moses continues on in verse 2. He says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So we're called, he's saying to them, Do not add, do not take away from the commands. Now he's not speaking of the scriptures, the law, as in there's not going to be any more written in the law. There's not going to be any more revelation coming. That's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to is the revelation that they had received from him, which would have been Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, including all the law, the statutes and law. That's the revelation that Moses had written to this generation. That was the word of God to them. He's like, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Because in so doing, you no longer are keeping the law. You will not obey it. So he's like, don't mess with the scriptures. Well, we know today that the whole word of God uh, that we have, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, is the whole counsel of scripture. And the command remains for us today, don't mess with the scriptures. Don't take away from it and don't add to it. Because when we take away from it and when we add to it, we are no longer keeping the word of God as God has given it to us. And we do this all the time. It's a very common and easy thing to do. I mean, in fact, I don't know if you've seen this anywhere, but Thomas Jefferson had a scripture, had a word, a Bible, and there were parts that he just didn't like. He didn't think they were true. He thought that they were dumb. So he cut them literally out of his Bible. At least he was honest about this. He just cut them out. So if you could see, if you could, there are copies of his Bible in a museum somewhere with pieces cut out the parts that he did not believe, that he did not think were true, the parts that he did not like. Do not take away or add to the scriptures. Now we may not literally take scissors to our Bibles. But we do this when we ignore certain sections of the Scripture, when we ignore the parts of Scripture that we don't like, or emphasize the parts that we do. We're not getting the whole counsel of the Word of God, and when we do that, we will fall into disobedience. We will not be following the Word of God. But then Moses goes on to give us an example, give them an example of what happens when we do that. Look at verse 3. He says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. Now when we ended last week's lesson, um, we ended with this um, sentence. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. That was after all of the battles and everything. And they kind of settled in this area, and I saw that Beth Peor, and I thought, I wonder if there's a connection between Beth Peor and Baal Peor. Ladies, there is. <laughs> there really is. We need to talk about this Baal Peor thing. Now, it's kind of a big deal in the Bible this event that happened. And I hope you guys spent a little time in your homework this week looking at the story behind this, this sentence here. But it's a kind of a big deal, and it's mentioned in numerous places throughout Scripture. The whole story in its context is found in Numbers 22 through 25. That's like the back story. You get the whole story with Balaam, and Balak. Um, Numbers 31:16 tells us that the events at Peor happened because of the advice of Balaam, who was a prophet, It is also mentioned in Joshua 22, verse 17, Psalm 106, 28, Hosea 9, 10, and finally, it's even referred to in the New Testament. Paul mentions it when he is writing to the Corinthians because they had fallen into sexual immorality and idolatry just like the children of Israel did. And he calls them out on it, and he reminds them of this story in history to serve as an example to not do this, to to repent from their sin. So this Baal Peor event, the other thought I had was, when did this happen? And at first, you know, like, a long time ago, I was thinking, surely this must have happened way back at the beginning in that second generation that was always doing everything wrong, <laughs> right? I really did. I thought every, everything that that first generation did was bad, and everything the second generation did was good. But Baal Peor happened a couple months before Moses gave the sermon. A couple months It happened after the great victories of those battles of Sihon and Og. Like right after that. These great victories when they had seen the marvelous deeds and works of God on their behalf. They did, as it is said in Numbers 25, 1 through 3. This is the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself, covenanted to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Their sin was one of idolatry and sexual immorality, and because of this sin, I think around 24,000 were killed that day. How can this happen? How can this happen right in the shadow of these great military conquests, right in the face of God's faithfulness to his promises? I would like to sit in condemnation over these people, but I can't. Because we are just like they are. They forgot God. They forgot his word, and instead of clinging to him, they clung to the false gods. They walked away, disobeyed, and fell into idolatry because they forgot God. They did not submit to God's commands in obedience, and the result is death. The wages of sin is death. Not everyone participated, though, in the sin. We learn in verse 4, but you who held fast. There was a remnant, there was some who held fast to the Lord their God, and they were alive today. Moses concludes, making his case, that obedience to the commands bring life. Disobedience brings death. And when they enter into the land, they are being called to keep and do them. Look at verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. There's that phrase again. As the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. Notice the repetition. Repetition is is important in scripture. If you see something repeated multiple times, pay attention. God is making a point. He's putting an exclamation mark on what he is saying. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. The commandments are for them wisdom and discernment. They teach them to be wise. They teach them how to live. And this wisdom and understanding will be in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all of these statues, will say... Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Those statutes and rules that the Lord is giving to his people are good. They are good and they are wisdom, and they are righteous, and they give discernment, and they reflect the character of God because God is all of those things. God is righteous. God is good. God is wise. God gives the gifts of discernment, and these statutes and rules, the covenant of God, reveal to us the goodness of God, and it reveals to the world that the Israelites are entering into that God is good it reveals their covenant relationship what other nation has such an intimacy that God would interact with them in such a beautiful way giving them these beautiful statues and hearing and listening to them as they pray it's revealing of who God is and his love for his people but we also see the missionary heart of God in this passage We see that God has always had a heart for the nations. His whole purpose in what he has done in Israel was to declare his excellencies in the nations, to the nations, so that the nations would be able to see this people who had this intimate relationship with this wonderful, gracious, good, wise, righteous God and be drawn to the light and drawn to him. We see that heart that he has, that he would be glorified through this people living in this dark land. And as Israel would receive the word of God and walk in submission and obedience to the law of God, they would shine like a bright light in a dark place, drawing attention from from the nations around them to God and to his goodness and to his glory That's in this text. This is revealing the heart of God for the nations. And yet we know the story. We know the story. We have our Bibles and we see that Israel failed. They could not do it. They, instead of being a light in the darkness, became a part of the darkness. The darkness overtook them. But in every way that Israel failed, Jesus The true and better Israel succeeded because he's the true light which gives light to everyone John 1 4 says in him in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it when Jesus entered into the darkness of this world he did not become like the darkness. He did not become like the darkness. The darkness could not overcome him. He is the fulfillment of this passage. Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. He entered the land of promise. And when he entered into the land of promise, he kept and he did all of the statutes and laws, perfectly every minute of his life. And it was his wisdom in the sight of the peoples. He vividly displayed the beauty of the righteousness of the law of God in ways that when we read about it in the New Testament, we can only marvel at. There was no greater example of what it means to walk in intimacy with God the Father as what we see in the way that Jesus the son of God walked. And so John 8:12 tells us that Jesus said to the crowds, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." So the invitation goes out from Jesus. He says, "I am the light. I am the light in the darkness. If you follow me, you will no longer be in the darkness, but you will walk in the light. To follow Jesus, to put your faith in him, to put your trust in him, and to go where he goes, and to do what he do- does, and to live as he lived in intimacy with the Father in submission to the word. Jesus said to his disciples in his sermon on the mount, you are the light of the world. When we follow Jesus and we put our faith and trust in him, we become lights in this world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the very same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father Who is in heaven. Do you hear the echoes of Deuteronomy 4 in Jesus' beautiful Sermon on the Mount? God's plan for Israel is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who is the light. But he gives his light to us, his church, his people. And we remain here in order to be just what God had intended in Deuteronomy lights in the darkness of this world. Through our faith in Jesus, through our submission and obedience to the word of God. But this is not easy. We don't just slide into holiness, do we? I wish we did. I wish that we would come to faith in Jesus Christ, put our faith and trust in him. And that very next moment, we wake up and we are shining beams of holiness. With no effort at all, no studying needed, just download everything into our lives, no discipline, just download it all. But that's not the way it goes. Moses continues to remind us and to call us to vigilance. We need vigilance, we need to follow after God, we need to hold fast. We need to guard. There are some sobering warnings. We don't just slide into holiness. We don't just slide into obedience. We are a forgetful people, and if we do not guard our hearts and our souls and our minds, we will slide into disobedience. We will fall into forgetfulness and idolatry. He warns to us in verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. The warning is strong. Take care. Keep your soul diligently all the days of your life not just one day not just at the beginning but every day when you if you live to be 90 years old if you do not keep your soul diligently you will slide away you will fall away all of the days of our life till we take our final breath and and our faith is made sight we are being called and warned to be diligent to keep our souls diligently so that it does not depart from your heart because we are a forgetful people. We have spiritual dementia. We can be praising God in one minute because all is well with the world and we are remembering God's faithfulness and his goodness and then we get a flat tire and everything is wrong and we are mad and we're grumbling and we're complaining and we're, you know, God is no longer in our thoughts, right? And we slide away into sin and disobedience and into idolatry. We are a forgetful people. So Moses, through this chapter, through this sermon, is warning us of our forgetfulness, but also giving us ways to help us to remember to remember, remembering requires rehearsing repeatedly. It requires retelling it, passing it on to others, to, the, to our children, to our grandchildren. Re- he, he calls us to remember. Look again at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. He recalls, it. he's actually living this out for them. He's doing it. He's remembering, he's rehearsing, and he's retelling all the things that their eyes had seen at the mountain. Remember the things that your eyes have seen, and unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Verse 10, how on that day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me. Just hear, hear the Lord's words. Gather the people. It's like a, it, it reminds me of that whole idea of, of God gathering his people as if they're chicks to bring them close to him. He says, gather them to me that I may let them hear my words. That I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth this is a lifelong journey and that they may teach their children so and you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire picture that to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness cloud and gloom then the lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire you heard the sound of his words but you saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, or the 10 words. We're going to be looking at that next starting next week. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. There were two tablets of stone. In the suzerain vassal treaties, there was always two tablets that would have the covenant on both, one for each side. So one of these tablets was for God, and one was for the people, so that both would remember his covenant. It's beautiful. And he wrote them himself on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So Moses is actually living out what God had commanded him to do. He's reminding them, he takes them all the way back to the mountain, all the way back to Sinai, and back to the covenant of God, and he reminds them of what they seen. They had seen. They, he reminds them of the fire, and darkness, and cloud, and gloom, and he paints a word picture for them of all that they had seen at the mountain. And they saw that the tablets of stone were written by the very finger of God. He reminds them that they saw no form of God. And he reminds them that they heard the audible voice of God giving the Ten Commandments. This is a profound event, is it not? That this group of people surrounding this mountain would have seen and heard all of these wondrous things. God had revealed himself to his people in a way that they could see, in a way that they could hear. And yet, remember who? is actually the recipient of this sermon, it's the second generation. It's not the first generation. Many of the people that are recipients of this original sermon may not have even been born when Sinai took place. And if they were, they were small, and they may not actually remember. And yet Moses is calling them to remember what they saw remember what you heard but they didn't actually see and they didn't actually hear but through moses's words to them those who were not there were brought directly to the mountain so that they could see and they could hear this is what scriptures are for us. This is the word. This is the word of God. This is the voice of God. You have this every single time you sit down with your word, your Bible and you open it up and you begin to read it and study. It. You, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to hear voice of God speaking to you out of the Scripture and if you are privileged to be in a church that preaches God's Word faithfully expositing it weekly every single time your pastor stands at the front and he opens up the word and he begins to speak to you from the Word of God you get the opportunity to to hear the voice of God. How significant is that? Do we appreciate what we have been so privileged to have in our scriptures? That we can hear the word of God, the voice of God. When we are listening to the word of God, we are at that mountain of the Lord, hearing his voice. Oh, Father, that you may give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear your voice in your word. Help us to treasure each and every moment we sit under your voice and not be ready to move on to the next thing. Help us to treasure your voice. Remembering and re- rehearsing and retelling the truths about God's character and nature and about his wondrous works is done for us today through remembering and rehearsing and retelling the truths of Scripture. It is how we watch our souls against forgetfulness, and it is how we watch our souls carefully against idolatry look at verse 15 therefore watch yourselves very carefully do you see here his urgency since you saw no form remember this is the second time he's brought out the fact that when god made his presence known he did not do so in a form you saw no form on the day that the lord spoke to you at horeb out of the midst of the fire beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to the heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars all the host of heavens, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God had allotted to all the peoples under the heaven. Beware, be warned, watch yourself very carefully. Because you saw no form, you are going to be tempted to fill in the form yourself, to begin to make an idol, to fill in the form Or to worship another God entirely. To worship something as created. There are two ways that we can fall into idolatry. That is one. To worship Yahweh. To worship the God of the Bible. In our own way. By creating him. After our own image. To fill in the form. God has revealed himself in his word to us. And when we start to tweak that. Or ignore parts of that. It goes back to that do not add or take away from the scriptures. Because when we add and take away, we begin to form a God of our own making. We begin to fill it in in our own way. And whenever we fill in the form, we diminish God. And we make him manageable. And in essence, we actually elevate ourselves above him and we become the God. There's a warning, a sober warning for us today to not fill in the the form. Edmund Clowney said in his book, Unfolding Mystery, God claimed a monopoly on his own self-revelation. He would appear to men as he chose, not as they might imagine him to be. The other way that we can fall into idolatry is by abandoning God altogether and worshiping something else. And that we saw in um, verse 19. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and begin to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. The created things. This is what the people, it was a very common thing in that day that they would worship creatures and created things. But the Lord, our God, has uh, made these things for us he has allotted them for his people they serve us we do not serve them it is god the lord the maker of the sun moon and stars who has power and authority and we can fight against idolatry by remembering who god is as he reveals himself And what God has done. Look at verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. He right away reminds them of who it is that is God and what he has done. He reminds them of Sinai and the covenant of God, and he reminds them of their redemption when they were set free from slavery in Egypt. These are the two highlights of the Old Testament. These two events are the highlights that are constantly needing to be remembered. Remember your redemption. Remember the covenant. And we fight against idolatry by remembering that. It was the Lord who has the power to take you out of the iron furnace. He was the one, and you belong to him. Remember this. We can also fight idolatry by remembering who the Lord is, but also the discipline of the Lord. Look where Moses goes next. He brings up the fact that he can't go into the promised land again. Furthermore, verse 21, the Lord was angry with me because of you. I just love how he keeps doing this. It just seems like every time he brings this up, it's like their fault and not his. But we know differently. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But you, you shall go over and take possession of the good land. Here is longing. He wants to go. He still wants to go. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. If Moses, who is a giant in the eyes and the minds of the people of Israel can experience the discipline of the Lord in such a way that he was not allowed to go into the land of promise. If that would happen to somebody as great as he, I mean, remember what was said of Moses, that he was a friend of God. He met with him in the tent of meeting face to face. And yet, he received the discipline of the Lord Let that be a sober warning to the people of Israel and to us today that disobedience can bring about discipline, even to somebody as great as Moses. We can remember the discipline of the Lord. Remember his covenant. Remember that the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What does it mean that God is a consuming fire? Well, they had seen that. They had seen the fire descend down on the mountain. They saw him as a consuming fire. This speaks to God's holiness and to his purity. And outside of God's covenant of love, all that is unholy will ultimately be consumed. He is a jealous God. This word can be also translated zealous. Zeal can be defined as a focused desire characterized by passion and commitment. God is a consuming fire, and outside of his covenant, all that is unholy will be consumed. He is jealous, zealous for those within his covenant and is passionately committed to them and to their holiness. His jealousy focuses on his desire for an exclusive relationship with his people. It is an aspect of his love for them, for if God did not love them, he would not care. He would not care about what they did or who they went after. His jealousy is about that exclusive, intimate relationship between God and his people. Lest we think that this is just a picture of the Old Testament God and that the God of today is different, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and I'm going to read just verse 28 and 29, but the whole chapter is beautiful but we don't have time to read all of it. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is the same. And we would do well to remember him as he has revealed himself. Remember who God is. Remember all that he has done. Rehearse it and retell it. Moses continues on. And the next section in verse, that begins in verse 25 is prophetic. It's a prophetic section of, of He's, he's warning them, but he's also prophesying about what is going to come. Verse 25 says, when, the fathers, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Spell, Smell. smell. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so when they go into the land, as they grow older, if they forget God, God will judge them. God will bring judgment. This is a prophetic word. It's a warning for them to heed, but it's also a prophecy of what is going to happen, what will come. Heaven and earth are called as witnesses that they will utterly perish from the land that they are going over to possess. They will not live long in it. They will be utterly destroyed. They would be scattered throughout the nations. And lastly, the thing that the Lord would do was he would give them the desires of their heart. They wanted these other gods, they would get them. They would serve and worship gods that cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. That's how God works. We see that in Romans chapter 1. When we deny the truth about God and exchange it for a lie and worship the creature rather rather than the creator, when we fall into idolatry as a people, he turns us over to the desires of our hearts. And this is what he does for the Israelites. This is what he tells them is going to happen if they forget the goodness of God in the land. But don't miss what comes next. Don't miss God's grace in his discipline. And his judgment of his people for their unfaithfulness. His discipline is not punitive. It's not punitive. It is redemptive. Look at verse 29. It says, but from there. From where? From the place of discipline. From being exiled from the land from being scattered among the nation, from the place of futility of worshiping and serving gods who cannot see, hear, eat, or smell, from that place you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search for him, after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, when you are in tribulation and all of these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. From the place of discipline they will turn and seek the Lord. God's discipline on his people is redemptive. It is done with the purpose of bringing us to a place of repentance so that we would turn away from the futility of what we're doing and how we're living and turn to the life-giving God who seeks relationship with us. His discipline is redemptive surely the prophet jeremiah was reading this when he wrote to the exiles who were in babylon listen to jeremiah's words from jeremiah 29 verse 10 says for thus says the lord when 70 years have been completed for for babylon i will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place Remember, Israel has been exiled because of their sin and because of their idolatry. They've been scattered just like Moses said would happen. And now, all these years later, Jeremiah is writing to those that have been scattered and said, I will, God will visit them and he will fulfill his good word to them. To bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. And come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. The fruit of discipline of the Lord in the life of his people is one of repentance. It is a returning to the Lord to obey his voice. Verse 31 back in Deuteronomy says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. We may be a forgetful people, but the Lord does not forget. He will not Forget his covenant, for he is a merciful God. The Lord is both a consuming fire and a jealous God, and he is merciful and faithful. Behold your God. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who revealed himself in creation, who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush, the God who descended in fire, darkness, gloom on Mount Horeb. This is the God who passed before Moses saying these words, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty. This is the God who will not forget his covenant, the covenant that he ultimately fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel who was consumed by the wrath of God on his cross, that we who are the unholy ones might receive mercy and grace and the forgiveness of sins. This is the God whose voice you hear coming out of Scripture, whose eyes, who you can see with your eyes, and he is the only God. And Moses ends this part of his sermon by challenging us Challenging us to think, is there really any other God? Could there be? Look at verse 32: For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you. Go back in time, go back in history. In fact, take you all the way back to creation, go all the way back to the beginning when God said, Let there be light. Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or has ever been heard of. So go all the way around the world. Go all the way out into the universe. Has anything like this ever happened in history, in time, in space, that God, did any other people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials and signs and wonders and war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by the great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? To you, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. God did all of this so that you would know him. Everything he's done in creation, everything he's done in redemption, everything he has done throughout time and space and history, he has done so that we might know him and know that there is no other God but Yahweh. Verse 36, out of heaven he let you hear. Listen to all the activity that God is doing in these passages. He let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know, therefore, today, and don't just know this, put it on your heart, engrave it on your heart, lay it on your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is No other. Do you hear all that God did in that? He let them hear. He let them see. He loved their fathers. He chose their offspring. He brought them out of Egypt. He drove out the nations. He gave them an inheritance. It's all him. He did all of that so that we might know him and we might lay it on our hearts that there is no other God. So let's look at the activity that the very same God is doing today. He let us hear his voice out of scripture. He let us see his presence through the word. He loved our fathers. He chose their offspring of which we are grafted into. He brought us out of slavery to sin and death. He is driving out our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, the sin that tangles our hearts, the pride, he gives us an inheritance, eternal life in his presence. And he did all of this that we might know today, not just know it with our minds, but know it with our hearts, that he is the only God. He is our God. This, my friends, is a call to worship. If this is who God is, and he is the only God, there can only be one response, and that is one of worship. And worship is a call to obedience. Look at verse 40. Therefore, in light of all that God is, in light of all that God has done, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you, and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. The same voice of God is calling out today through the word of God, the voice that God has chosen us and called us into the family of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and through the covenant of his blood. The voice of the spirit of God calls out to us with these words. Therefore, I urge you, sisters, on account of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your re- spiritual service of worship. Let's pray. Father, we are in all of you, for you our wondrous God, beyond our ability to express your excellencies. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, through creation, and ultimately through your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for calling us into relationship with you. We thank you for your word. Help us to hold fast to you and hold fast to your word, to walk in humble submission to you, We pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us, Lord, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to you as our reasonable act of worship. I pray all this in the powerful and precious name of our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.